but I saw a camel standing there while my son was reading books at this little kids festival. And I said, I'm bored. I'm going to go over and see why this camel is here. No children are riding it. And so I just stared at this big camel. And then I saw a guy nearby and he was selling soap and lotion made from camel milk. And then for some reason, and this is the ultimate random, I said, what else do they do with the milk? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And I love to hear from my listeners. My new website, ZestfulAging.com, is finally up, and it makes it super easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. Our music is provided by Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, will be out in January of 2020. Find out more about Judy at her website, judybanker.com. We have a great interview for you today. I'm speaking with author Christina Adams, who is an award-winning writer, and she's the author of the fabulous and unusual memoir, Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. She's a journalist and speaks internationally on writing, travel, cultures, health, autism, and of course, camels. And her work has been featured by National Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times, and many, many more major news outlets. Welcome to the show, Christina. Delighted to be here with you, Nicole. I am so excited to talk to you. I think people are going to find your work absolutely fascinating. Let's start with this idea. You know, as I was reading your book, I thought this woman is becoming a folk hero. (laughs) And I'm wondering what it feels like to be now, you know, having so many people who have loved ones with autism or on the autism spectrum reading your book and wanting to try camel milk. You are the expert on this. How does it feel to be this sort of folk hero? Well, I've never heard folk hero, and I love that. You're very kind. Thank you. Um, I think it's interesting for me personally that I sometimes... I'm really, I mean, I'm always really appreciative that people are giving their precious time to learn about something that can help others and to share my enthusiasm for my topics as a writer. But also it's really kind of surreal sometimes because I didn't grow up around any camels. I, you know, I'm a woman from Virginia. We did not have any kind of exotic animals. We didn't really even travel outside of our state. So it's kind of um, kind of strange, but wonderful. So I guess sometimes I say to myself, how, how do I end up doing this? Like I'm writing a book about camels. I'm, I go around camel farms or there's thousands and thousands of thousands of the beautiful animals. And I'm very familiar now with, you know, just talking with people from so many different cultures, but part of me is still, you know, the person that uh, grew up in Virginia and thinks, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I was, I'm just thinking about mostly American-ish type of stuff, but that's long gone. I mean, I've always had a passion for the world, 
even as a mm -hmm. child, I always hoped that I would be able to travel and learn about other things. And so I guess um, it feels really amazing that I'm getting to do that through this vehicle. It's interesting because you say, you know, you grew up in Virginia and you were, you know, not a not big animal place, farm, or you didn't have a lot of contact. And also there wasn't a lot of travel yet. You must have been at some, some way, some kind of adventurer. And I'm wondering, you know, what got you to these places that where the camels live, you know, in the Bedouin communities in in the Middle East and Africa. I mean, you had to have some kind of little hidden adventure, adventurism in there somewhere. That's not a normal, typical thing. Well, I think this is the great part about as we get older, we can look back and see where were we and who are we now. I have mm. always been that that child that was interested in reading way above her age level, wanted to be an archaeologist, wanted mm. to, you know, um, collect things from different countries, uh, appreciating the decorative arts of other countries because America, you know, we're, we have our own wonderful style, but we don't have the color, the, uh, the geometric um, history of art. We don't have those things that a lot of older cultures have. So I, I find it, I guess it's just partly my personality. I'm always curious. I'm always have been, mm -hmm. and I'm always wanting to learn more. But um, I just feel like it's it's kind of a two step thing. So first of all, I always dreamed of doing things like I'm doing, but I never saw any way to do it until I would you know be a grown up. Of course, I'm thinking as a child, but I certainly didn't think it would happen like this way. But second of all. It's, um, it's kind of, um, as a woman, it's a little bit different too, because women, we don't have the freedom generally that men do in some ways, because we can be um, kind of taken advantage of physically if we get in the wrong situation. So you're kind of raised to, to uh, you know, not think that you can just fly to a city by yourself and go everywhere and, and do anything you want. But then I did realize later in life, I can do a lot of things. I just have to do them smartly. I just have mm. to try to to um, take my my own desires and do them the most smart way that I can. So now I am not afraid of walking into, you know, a different a different uh, city that I haven't been to or um, getting on an airline that I haven't gone to and going to a country. You just have to do it smartly. So mm -hmm. the good thing is that there are always people out there if you're able to connect with them that are enthusiastic to meet you, to share their culture with you. And you just have to find those wonderful, friendly people. And they're everywhere. I, I think also, you know, and we'll we'll get into this more later, but you have a real, you talked about curiosity, but you have a real humility about going to these places, you know, with the Amish and also in some of the nomadic tribes and some of the people you met, you didn't come sort of telling them what you knew about the benefits of camel milk. Oh, no. Um. I'm just a person that happened to have the idea that, that autism might be helped by camel milk and that it would be a non-allergic milk. But, uh, you know, I went into it with an attitude of exploring and, and trying to find out what is going on. But I will not ever be that person that goes in to try to, you know, tell a culture anything about their own knowledge. I'm the person that's going to go in and say, well, this is what's happening in our part of the world. What do you think and what do you what would you like to contribute 
to this because you're the you're the most amazing experts on on this deep knowledge that you have and and so it's two thousand year old history of yeah. using chamomile. So I should start. Um, I should back up and ask you uh, about your son Jonah and. What did you start noticing that alerted you that something might be off? Well, uh, I have, for people that are just kind of coming to this anew, so I was, uh, you know, just minding my own business. I'd gotten a, after a career in Washington and in the Pentagon, and then also um, in aerospace out in California, I uh, got married, had a baby, and went to graduate school and got a degree in writing, and I had a novel, so that was my plan. But then my son was diagnosed with autism and so he was almost three and so I just had to drop everything in life as you do and turning into um, trying to help him get better and going to this new area of autism so at that time I knew something I mean he was really doing well but then he regressed so at that time like he was getting kicked out of preschools he was biting me all the time this is when he was you know two and so I kept running around trying to get help for him but People did not say anything except, oh, he's a boy or, um, mm, you know, maybe you just yeah. need to let him grow out of it. So, Or you maybe you're also being too permissive. Did you get that feedback? I hear a lot of parents who have kids that are, you know, maybe difficult or socially awkward that you have to be more strict. Well, people do say that. Uh, luckily, people didn't say that to me a lot. But I did have somebody later in life when he was, a you know, a young boy and say, have you ever tried spanking him? He just needs a good spanking. Oh, I was boy. like, I looked at this person, I was like, uh, yes, mm -hmm. and that is like throwing gasoline on a fire. No, I mm -hmm. haven't tried it because you cannot, you know, hit a disability out of a person. So mm -hmm. thank you for your suggestion, but please don't ever say <laughs> that to anyone again. <laughs> thank you for your dumbass suggestion. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, that is annoying. So luckily that only happened that one time. Yeah, people say all kinds of things, but I think that sometimes they don't say them to me as much as they do other people. So maybe that's a reflection of me just looking like I'm doing my best or they don't want to have a, you know, maybe they think they know what I'm talking about or maybe they just keep their mouth shut, but not anymore, fortunately. But I went through the whole gamut, you know, when he was a kid. There's very little we didn't have to go through. So I did learn a lot about autism and early intervention and I had to drop everything and stay home and run this massive program for him. And that included all the therapies, ABA, which is a certain kind of uh, behavioral teaching method, mm -hmm. uh, speech therapy, occupational therapy for the motor mm -hmm. skills. And mm -hmm. then I learned a lot about the biology of, you know, people with autism. And then that leads to understanding the biology of all humans. And so that's when uh, I wrote my first book. So I turned from my novel and I wrote that book while I was living that um, therapy life with him. And it's a memoir and it's called A Real Boy, A True Story and of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. I see. And you were also uh, having some difficulties in your marriage at this time. Oh, yes. I mean, and that also is a very common thing when you have a child with health issues or especially mm -hmm. autism because it's so complex. There are so few solutions in the mainstream medical world and you really, and it's super expensive and it's exhausting beyond mm -hmm. and it's socially mm -hmm. damaging. So the couples that have tended to stay together now, I've noticed after I've gone through this for so many years, the couples that tend to stay together are the ones where they really are either on a team or generally it's just the way it is. The mothers are the ones that generally lead the intervention and then the dads, um, if they're, you know, in a traditional married couple, you know, heterosexual, 
the dads just will follow and let the mom kind of take the lead. So those are the ones that tend to stay married. The ones where the dad kind of doubts her or the, um, you know, or there's conflict, um, that those are the ones that, or the, somebody just doesn't want to accept the disability or somebody kind of runs away. Those are the ones that fail. And that's a high, Mm. you know, there is a failure rate there. High divorce rate. Mm Mm-hmm. So you were, I mean, you had left your job, your big job, you were writing, you were, you were the case manager for Jonah. So many things you were juggling. Yeah, it was not anything that I expected. And, you know, no one ever thinks things are going to happen to them, but I sure didn't see this coming. So it was really overwhelming, but it was also a chance for me to, as soon as I went into it, I started realizing wow, nobody's telling these families what they need. Nobody's telling them. The schools are supposed to tell them certain things. They make it difficult. The local authorities that are supposed to fund certain services and things, they don't tell you or they disqualify or they make it difficult. So it's about, I always, I said at that time, oh, I'm going to keep writing. I'm not going to drop my novel. And then what do you know? Boom, like a few months later, I wrote an editorial for the LA Times on autism and people not serving the families like they should. It set off a little good firefight you know, that the people, the, the officials had to respond. The families were super ecstatic. They wanted to keep it going. And mm-hmm. so that made a few changes at the time, which was good. And so that just led me deeper into the autism uh, writing world. And I just thought I need to keep doing it. So then I also had written a piece for the LA Times Magazine, and that ended up on National Public Radio. And I started doing some commentaries there for a while. And so those things helped me get this book published called A Real Boy. And so I'm delighted that people are still reading it, but uh, there is life after the first book, and that's what led me to Camel Crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're noticing that you're so immersed in the world of autism and understanding it and trying to put all the pieces together, do, you know, commenting on policy and also helping your boy. And then you just randomly come across an obscure article on camel milk oh it was before that no i had uh i mean that was after so uh-huh. i was just a, it was it was um this is a thing that shows you that insight and science can come from anywhere even someone like me who uh yeah i i'm lucky in some ways that i can understand a lot of stuff but i don't have a science degree i have a master's degree and other things writing and all that but you know i had had a background in mastering technical material so don't undercount yourself. You know, you can have these mm-hmm. ideas. So I was at a kid's book fair with my son right after my first book came out. And I saw a camel standing there. And he was reading and I was kind of bored and I was newly separated. Yes, the marriage did end. And I was very fearful at the time. Being a single mother of an autistic child and I didn't have local family was not going to be a good fate. And I knew it. But I saw a camel standing there while my son was reading books at this little kid's festival. And I said, I'm bored. I'm going to go over and see why this camel is here. No children are riding it. And so I just stared at this big camel. And then I saw a guy nearby and he was selling soap and lotion made from camel milk. And then for some reason, and this is the ultimate random, I said, what else do they do with the milk? Mm. And he's, yeah. Mm. And he said, well, they give it to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic and it may be close to human breast milk. And that was my light bulb moment. So I had the, the instant kind of, we can call it intuition, we can call it insight, mm-hmm. but I had the idea that this milk may help reboot my son's immune system and therefore lead to his improvements in his autism. 
and I also thought if could if it's non-allergenic, that would be a great dairy substitute for people like him and others that can't have regular cow milk. Because for him and many, many people with autism symptoms, uh, cow milk and other type of milks like that can exacerbate autism symptoms. For him, it created hand flapping, toe walking, and uh, all kinds oh, of uh, skin all those issues. Hard and, symptoms, yeah. Yeah, all those symptoms. And he even said when he was uh, like seven or something, he said, it feels like there's dirt in my brain when he gets it. Aha. So that's so interesting. Yeah, so, so I, it was your curiosity. Curiosity and... killed the camel. <laughs> <laughs> and so you started trying to make contacts like a mom on a mission and there's this sense and there's you know uh somebody comments on it that you are just on fire after that <laughs> there's no stopping you that's true and i just to you know it's just felt like to me okay this is just something that i just i don't even i can't really tell you why i mean it was going to be a problem solver for him i felt and others but then, I mean, really, I was newly single and I was moved to a condo behind a freeway and a convenience store. And that was different than the nice neighborhood we'd been living in and all those things. But I never stopped. I don't know why. I just felt like this mm -hmm. is what I have to do. You were on a mission. And it's interesting to think about because I, I can hear you, you know, like pausing about it because, yes, it's a problem solve, but something sparked. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I don't know whether it's the desperation of, you know, having a child who's suffering, but I'm just so curious about, you know, what that felt like. Like, no, I am going to find a way to import this and there's nothing that's going to stop me. It's kind of crazy, as you see in the title, but um, I just, I never questioned myself. I just did what I felt. I didn't even really think about it that much. I was like, this needs to be done and I'm going to do it because nobody else mm. is going to do it. Mm. And uh, I just did that. So I did find after I had my idea a few months later, I did find that somebody had given camel milk um, to uh, children on the autism spectrum in Israel and they had gotten a lot better and food allergies as well. So that did tell me, okay, my insight was correct. So yeah, then I had to call all around and there were no camel people in America that were going to write me back back at the time. And I didn't even know a thing about it. So then I managed to get a hold of some and, um, and I flew it in from the Bedouin people in the desert in uh, the uh, Israel area. And all those hours it flew, these bottles of raw frozen milk and it made it to LAX and I got it in my hands and I just felt like mm. this is really it's amazing. It's the magic. It's mm -hmm. the magic. It's like, a, you know, there was something that just think about all it took for you to figure this out. And then some, some of it came through and some of it did not make it through customs. Well, mo yeah, the first time I tried it, they dumped it because I didn't know how to do it. They, my friend that was trying to bring it in, he's a Pakistani gentleman that was traveling to Israel and, and we didn't know what to do. But the second time I had a, somebody that I'd connected with in Israel and he was a researcher, a, a, a cancer researcher, and he knew about camel milk and I knew about autism. So we started Skyping and, and uh, having our ideas and putting our little hypothesis together. And so he helped me get it in. So uh, I use the word smuggling loosely, 
Um, I did have doctor's letters and I did do everything I thought I needed to do, but you know, I didn't do this big official permission with all this weird commercial importing, but I did find uh, that there is um, a provision for a child to uh, have milk for uh, when they're traveling, you know, in another country, they can, you can bring in milk for a child's use. I'm like, okay, that's the loophole. I'm going to drive this Mack truck right through it. <laughs> that's right. My Mack that's truck right. suitcases, two suitcases <laughs> that cost me $1,700 to get in the country. Um, but then luckily I had a great support and I was able to obtain USDA federal permission. Uh, that was probably a first. And so it's been, it was great. And then after he got his amazing overnight response, which was just a staggering response, that's, exceeded that's, everything. That's right. And I, I remember you were, you were almost afraid to acknowledge it. I was so beat down by that point after this year and a half of, you know, being a single mom and going through all the, you know, divorce hells and um, exhaustion and, and struggling to get this milk in. And I just was like, oh, I'm giving up, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to him. And it was just amazing. Like I was, I didn't want to prejudice anything. Um, so uh, the wonderful man that I had met and end up marrying happened to come over in the morning and help get him ready for school. That's a wonderful mm -hmm. way to date a single mother, by the uh. way. <laughs> Forget the flowers. Just come over Just and come help over. with the morning preparation. That 7 a.m. knock on the door and, <laughs> and you see this wonderful guy standing there ready to oh, make breakfast. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, That's, yep. Yeah. So my son's response was so incredible that we couldn't believe it. And then it sustained, too, and it started working not just in his emotional uh, speech content, his the smoothness of conversation, the motor skill improvements, mm -hmm. like, putting on his own backpack and shoes, asking more relevant questions. Then his skin started clearing up and he was able to cross the street too and look both ways and I didn't have to hang on to his collar. And it was just a game changer. And then I just thought, okay, I'm gonna keep going. And then I had the idea later to try, like a couple years passed and I found out that Amish people in America were milking camels. And I thought, I've gotta get that. So I tried it on him and he, it had the same effect. And so that showed, guess what? It's not the breed of the camel. It's not the magic herbs they eat in the desert in Israel. Um, it is actually the uh, camel itself. So I gave it to him. And since it, since it worked, I knew that. He was kind of like my little science experiment. <laughs> and, you had and that no was guidelines. A, you were just making it up. No, but you always apply the scientific method in, in anything that you're going to change variables. So... I always caution families of people with autism or any health condition, you know, everybody wants to try a lot of different things, but you only change one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's how you know if it's going to work or not. If you try a bunch of different things at one time, you're going to muddy the waters. So that's the scientific method. Keep the variables the same, change one thing and observe. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to imagine what it was like for you, Christina, after you had given Jonah the camel milk for the first time and then saw this miraculous change and he sat I think you said he sat at the table and there wasn't a lot of dropping silverware and fiddling and all over the place and and you said he was more on task I'm just trying to imagine what that experience was like for you to watch this unfold in front of your eyes well some people say that's their favorite part of the book that um you know, I didn't really know. I gave it to him at bedtime and I was just so exhausted. I was like, oh, 
whatever. I don't even know. I don't even hope anymore. I just have a faint, you know, hope that something's good about this. And so it was such a, a moment, like you're seeing something unfold in front of you. I guess if you're seeing, I guess I could call it like if you're watching, you know, a little egg and, and a chicken is little baby is pecking its way out of it and the miracle that that is that all of a sudden this something is revealing itself that you've never seen before that seems like an ordinary object you know an egg or you know children are children they shouldn't be so special of course you know all children are wonderful but when you see something change so remarkably right in front of your eyes that you can't predict what's going to happen it's sort of like um, a really transcendent moment mm -hmm. a spiritual mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. um you know you can it's science-based but it is very special as humans to see that especially when it's your own child so you're hearing things like you know i really love you mom you do so much for me and mm -hmm. he was also including my um boyfriend at the time uh you you guys do this for me you make my medicine you make my food and he was just so much calmer and just a new a new level of um of the ability that I hadn't seen before. And it let me really see kind of his thought processes more. Now, mm -hmm. he had always done pretty well since he got his intervention and everything, but I still knew that there were things that could improve. And that brought us to a whole new level. And it was um, very magnificent in a very quiet way, a miracle at the breakfast table, you know. Mm -hmm. So you could see your child underneath, you know, who was underneath those symptoms. Yeah, and I know um, I've been, I, uh, I, I do have people with autism that are endorsing my book. I am involved with the autism community. I do support, you know, people with autism. So it is, I don't want to say that like, oh, you know, uh, they're like, um, like that try to change them, you know, and, and change mm -hmm. their personality is. But I do think it's important to know that a lot of their abilities are impaired or masked by the, uh, the immune function and the symptoms that they're having that are medical that can manifest in some of the things that uh, create autism symptoms. So it was getting to see more of who, who he was and what he was able to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Hey, Zestfulagers. Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more, and I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. Do you want to talk a little bit about your travel and meeting people who in a million years, I think you never would have imagined you'd be in the desert. Um, and just to describe you physically, you have pretty long, blonde, curly hair. I mean, you don't look like a native uh, Bedouin. Uh, Am I right about that? I, I'm, uh, you know, from America and I, my people were originally probably English and Irish, mm -hmm. some Scotch, some Dutch, and yeah, I yeah. definitely look like that. I do. Yeah. Um, but 
the beautiful part is when you want to be friends with somebody from a different culture, if you come in a good purpose, generally I, I'm, I'm just amazed and honored at how sweet and nice everybody is to me. So, and you know, I, I, people from like, if I go, when I go to India, for example, when I hung out with the, uh, the camel herding people called the Rika, now I was there with some Rika people to bring me in and introduce me and all that. But there's a couple of chapters in the book on them. So these, these people are all men, mostly that I was meeting. And I went to the Pushkar fair for the first time. And that's a big giant fair in India where traditionally the camel breeders bring their camels and they get a lot of their income for the year. But their use of camels is dropping. And so they're under stress. They believe they were created uh, by Lord Shiva to take care of camels. That's their culture. And so when you're with men that their life purpose is slipping away, I mean, it's kind of tough. So it was still nice of them that they, you know, even bothered to spend their time with somebody like me that showed up and uh, cooked, you know, and shared their food with me and spoke with me and even joked around with me. And there's a funny part in the book where when I was first there, a couple of guys were, you know, came up to me and um, I'm with a young man that I'd met on Facebook, but never met him in person till then. And so I'm sure they're, they're like, okay, who is this person? But then one of them um, offered me um, a cigarette and it's a little Indian cigarette called a beady. And, and so I don't smoke, but uh, you know, being a teenager, I had of course tried it back in the day. So um, they, they handed me this like a challenge, like, okay, you're here. Let's see what, what you're made of. And so I took that little cigarette and for some reason <laughs> I, I inhaled it and I was able to blow smoke out of both of my nose, like a, blow like a you know blowing out Ooh, the big the big double stream like ah. like i've been doing it all my life and i hadn't but i somehow managed to pull it off that day and boy did they love that they laughed so hard they were very impressed and then um one of the gentlemen uh, wanted to uh, trade his ring that had a camel on it for one of my rings and i really was tempted but then uh you know wedding jewelry my ring was wedding jewelry and that has the same cultural meaning in any culture oh right so I, I had to say, no, it's my wedding jewelry, so I can't, but boy, do I wish I could. So that was a real icebreaker. And then after that, when I went to some festivals where they're having very serious meetings, you know, I would speak and try to say, well, this is what we're doing in America. And I think you have a business model here because I also hear from people from lots of cultures and I already had worked with people in India. So if you can do this, then they all want your product. And so I remember sitting down and then people were, some of these fine herders were passing beaties to me from the back rows up to the oh front. And I'm like, gosh. oh yeah, that's very sweet. Very nice. I like the, the beaties. So I tell that's, you, don't try those. That's the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> that goes the bridge, but they're very strong. So don't get hooked on those things. <laughs> and you, uh, you were wearing some of the native uh, dress. Am I, am I right? You, you commented on how beautiful some of the textiles were as you traveled. Uh, I'm, I do, um, I do enjoy, I love fabric. I love style. I love all that. And so I wanted to, to, before I go meet with different people, you know, you've got to research what their culture is because you want to make sure that you're following the dress code and, and not causing any issues and demonstrating the respect that you should have if you're going to visit. So, um, the first times I was going to Dubai, the Middle East, you know, I, I didn't really know as much, but I, I knew don't wear shorts and don't do mm. this and that. But, um, you know, it's a misconception that everyone has to cover their head or their face when they when they go to Dubai. I mean, they don't expect people to do that as a Western person. 
but going to India and being out in the rural cultures, I said, and I was going to do media over there too, because I usually do. And so I said, well, you know, what, what should I wear? Um, and they said, and they're Indian people, I asked quite a few, and they said, oh, we like it if you would wear our clothes. It would make you, make us feel like, you know, you're kind of with us. You're kind of, you know, uh, caring about us. And I said, well, that's great because I love Indian clothing so much that it's an honor for me. And I will just go to town on getting to wear your most beautiful clothing. And so I did get to do that. And it's comfortable. I mean, see, this is where we can learn things too. There, for women, um, I'm not talking about a sari because they can be more um, elaborate if you have to pin them up and all that. But uh, just the, the regular type of clothes with the leggings and the tunics, like they're modest, they're comfortable, they protect you from the sun. Like that, I could, I could dress like that all the time here. It's very easy, easy, nice thing to wear for a woman. So mm-hmm. you learn things. And then I got the chance to actually walk in a fashion show from an Indian designer friend that I met when I was preparing for that trip. There's an Indian neighborhood um, not that far from me. So she sold me a shirt to wear over there. And when I came back, I had a dress I had bought in Mumbai that was beautiful. And she said, oh, where'd you get that? And so I said, well, you know, I love this kind of clothing. So then I was honored to walk in this uh, power woman fashion show. Oh my and gosh. I never thought in my life that, you know, I would be a model, which I'm certainly not a model, (laughs) but it was a heck of a fashion show. I had no idea it was going to be that huge and like a real amazing fashion show. So that was quite the experience too. And, and uh, I love, I love wearing their clothing and it's so beautiful and decorative. And so colorful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So it just, the doors have been opening in places that you just one after another could have never, ever imagined. Yeah, and as we get older and make more more um, more steps in life, I really think that keeping our mind more open, it should be the way that we are. We're all born, mm-hmm. you know, with a set of this is how things are, this is how we behave, this is what we believe, and there are things out there that you just can't even imagine. And I have really learned so much. I mean. Just because someone's culture is different than mine and their habits are different than mine, they might be better than mine. I mean, I've learned that. Some things, like people, um, the way that they will uh, share food in a different culture. You know, sometimes people put it on a big platter and you eat off the same platter. So we don't do that too much in America. But it's so communal and it's so lovely. And it's so nice that now I, nothing will make me happier than, you know, sitting on a floor in front of a big, wonderful platter of food, you know, eating mm-hmm. with my fingers with amazing people. So they were having a great discussion. And so, you know, that's, that's just one of the small things that I've learned to look at differently and more expansively. So I just think as we get older, we should be opening our mind more and instead of keeping it more closed. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about all these wonderful things that have happened and that you've opened the way for uh, people to know about this and to be helped by this. I'm wondering if there's also another side of this. You described how moms would be asking, lining up to ask you, where do I get this? How much do I give? Needing sometimes interpreters that people, you could just see the desperation in the parents uh, saying, please tell me more. I need to get my hands on this. Is there sort of also a side of you know, negotiating how much need there is. And also the other part is 
trying to help folks with their lifestyle um, of of the you know the using the camels and being camel. Uh, how do you call it? I mean, is it farming? What what is the the right word? Camel. Well, you can call, yeah, you yeah. can call it um, you can call it agriculture, or you can call it pastoralism because okay. some of them are not settled in one place and they go okay. different places, like nomadic. nomadic. Yeah. So, like you're, you, you know, you're you're also dealing, you're seeing things that are difficult. Yeah. So that's really why I'm I'm really really happy that I got to write this book and that a publisher, you know, loved it and is has published it and even put in 46 color pictures of these beautiful people and animals and then the story. So how do I, I guess the great thing, the entree that is provided to me is that autism, like any disorder, is a great leveling experience. We all have the same questions, wants, hopes, and desires. I mean, humans do. People with disabilities, they want the same thing as people without disabilities. Like People over different cultures want the same thing as others. So being in that autism world taught me, no matter what, where we come from, we all want the same things for our kids. And so that gave me the ability and the confidence to just, you know, meet somebody where they is because the, where they are, because I know they're just like me. They want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so why is there a space for me like this? Because the traditional allopathic, you know, or quote, Western medicine, it's become very um, commercialized and it is male dominated. It is Western dominated. And that's not necessarily a good thing because you're leaving out a lot of voices and a lot of access. So for autism, they don't have much. So there's a space for somebody like me that I can find something that works, uh, not only for autism, by the way, for uh, arthritis, uh, diabetes, uh, gut issues, food allergies, skin conditions, things like that. But the autism provided me that access to know what people need and to develop something that actually may help a great deal of people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of, it's stressful in a way that um, I wish I could help everybody doing everything. And I do try to do that. It's hard to get the word out, but I've done best I can. But a lot of people find me and they're in extreme situations. You know, sometimes somebody will write me and say, my son is 22 in India and he's been awake for five days mm-hmm. and I'm in a room with him. And I'm, I want to, I don't know that I can survive any longer, mm-hmm. you know, so I, that, that's where I am here. And I'm like, well, let me connect you with this person, this person, this person, or, mm-hmm. you know, someone in the Middle East, uh, they, you know, they've been in transit from another country and they're in Dubai and they're like, you know, well, what do I do here? And I'll say, well, here's this organization, here's this place and you can do this. Uh, people in India, you know, they really uh, are very dairy, dairy, um, dairy using people from cows and things like that. And so I understand that, and a lot of them are vegetarian. So if I'm going to give them something that might require them to remove cow milk, I'm going to be sensitive about it, and I'm going to say, look, this is how you can adapt your recipes with olive oil. Other Indian people are doing it. Here's how you connect with them. And this is you know, how you can incorporate the camel milk and things like that. So there's a space for me, and I, you know, I don't, it's not something I ever thought I would do, but it's a human need. And then the camel people, some of them are doing great because of this. Because when I wrote my articles back in 2012 and 13 and I went public, one was, you know, went really big viral and helped kick off this movement around the world. And then 2013, I wrote a medical journal article that got the science uh, involved. And 
it's been cited a dozen times now, I guess, and uh, so it kicked off a lot of science research. But otherwise, why is there a space for me? Like, ideally, there wouldn't be a space for me, you know, and I didn't really expect to end up doing this in my life. But there is a need and there is a wide, you know, group of people who are out there desperate. And so if you see somebody that needs help and you can help them and, you, you know, I guess that's just how it is. I see some people that need help. I see that the camel people can also use the help and especially the ones who are in the pastoral areas who are losing their land and and they have this valuable commodity but you know they don't know how to i mean they are surrounded by legal things that are tough uh, yeah the yeah. marketing is part so so they don't know autism families you know they're a lot of these people are rural the, a lot of the autism families are you know not out there with them they're in the cities so i just try to connect them all together mm -hmm. and i don't know it's it's something i never expected but it is an honor and a privilege to be able to uh, help people. Is that what you're doing these days, mostly now as being somewhat of a clearinghouse for folks um, using camel milk? Or I've been doing that you... for for, dec for you know a decade. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been doing that for a long time. Um, and that's why I couldn't keep doing it one-on-one -on -one anymore because um, I have videos out there and a lot of people watch those, they reach me. Uh, they find me through other articles I've written. And so I was doing a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, but I couldn't keep doing that anymore. The volume is too great. So mm -hmm. I just thought I have to get the book out there. And so mm -hmm. the book does have all those. It tells the story and, and all the adventures and stuff, mm -hmm. which are really kind of amazing, I think. I mean, yes, I don't know. Yes, indeed. Well, and I'm then the... you have you have so many resources in the back that are technical. Yeah, so that's why I put it in there because I know people generally are going to want camel milk or at least know somebody that will. And so mm -hmm. that's why I put in that user's guide in the back. And it actually, you know, explains how much do I use for this health condition? Where do I get it? How do I prepare it? And all that stuff. So I'm convenient now, like, um, okay, here, you give me your email here. It's all here in this book. So you can uh, read all about it right here. <laughs> That's right. It's more efficient. What are you working on now? What's your next project? Uh, well, right now the book is still so brand new. So we're mm -hmm. I'm doing speaking engagements and conferences, and um, I'd like to start doing book club meetings. That would be fun. Um, but then I have been asked to write, you know, a couple articles, and I probably will do that. But will I write a novel next? Maybe. Will I mm -hmm. take a real job? Maybe. Um, <laughs> will job. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But um, I'd like to see the book get a really good footing. And so far, we're off on a good start with that. And, and it must, and I, it occurred to me, it'd make a wonderful film. If anybody has those type of connections, I'm yeah. all ears. Yeah. Um, it, you know, my literary agents um, and editors, the people have said things like, it's, uh, you know, Lorenzo's Oil Meets Eat, Pray, Love Camels. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I, I do think it would be amazing because there's so many different wonderful people in it and they, you know, visually it's just a beautiful story, not because of, you know, particularly myself or anything. It's because of the beautiful animals and the people and, uh, the children, including my son. So, oh my goodness. Well, it is a wonderful book. It's got so much going on. You know, your passion just comes through. And then there's the cultural part. You know, it's a love story. It's it's just a very, very unique and, and satisfying read. So I would 
so recommend it. And I'd like to uh, give our listeners a place where they can reach you and find out more. Oh, I would love that. I'd love to connect with my listeners, um, your listeners, uh, whoever is out there that's interested. So my website is christinaadamsauthor.com. And the book is called Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. And so you can get it on Amazon in many countries. And then you can also, for my international uh, people, they can generally get it on Amazon. Or there's a book depository uh, that you can get free international shipping. And any bookstore can order it for you. So you can either ask them to carry it or you can uh, ask them to order it for you. And of course, uh, my website is christinaadamsauthor.com. And if you have a group or something that would like to have a speaking engagement, be it virtual or in real life, let me know. I would love to, to hear more from you. And I'm on Facebook too at Christina Adams Author. Yeah, and as I told you earlier, we have many listeners throughout the Middle East and Africa uh, and India. So I'm hoping some of those folks are listening and um, they can read about some of their local uh, local areas in the book. They I will, s- yeah. They will uh, read about themselves, uh, their heritage, uh-huh. and you know they're going to be surprised that probably some of the things they heard from the older people in their lives are going to be turning up as having a grain of truth in them in this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. I remember you saying that so, some of this these cultures are thousands of years old, and this was something that was known before you know we figured it out. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, it's, Christina. Thank you so much. It's been so inspiring talking to you and learning about this quest and I'm so glad that Jonah's doing well and I so appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure and thank you for all the wisdom and insight that you've brought to our uh, lovely chat today. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.